Welcome to the podcast, How to Be Well and Strong. I'm your host, Jacqueline Genova, and I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with some of the leading figures in the fields of wellness, integrative medicine, and mental health as we discover what it truly means to be well and strong in both body and mind. Get ready to be empowered, inspired, and motivated about being an advocate for your own health. Welcome back to another episode of the show, everyone. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with Dr. Daisy Anglo about a topic that really affects us all, and that's hormonal balance. Dr. Daisy is a state of Arizona licensed naturopathic family medicine physician with an extensive nutrition science background. She earned a Bachelor in Nutrition Science, Dietetics, and Biology from Syracuse University and is a sought-after health educator, writer, blogger, and podcaster featured in multiple publications. She became passionate about naturopathic medicine through her own high school years battling asthma and weight gain. Growing up in a family of 12 doctors, she is the first naturopathic physician. Dr. Daisy, welcome to the show. I was just telling you, this is an amazing record for us, two times chatting in one week after only communicating via Instagram for the past, what, like two years? Two years, three years. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. I love this. Like, I connected with you just from like your genuine, kind nature. And then you told me you were on the East Coast, you live in Beacon Hill. That's my, that's like my neighborhood. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's my person, you know, and your Christian faith, which I really resonate with. So I'm like, this is perfect match. <laughs> you are so sweet. I know the sad thing is that I moved out of Boston right when we connected, right? And I was like, oh, I could, could have had a friend, but I'll, I'll plan a visit there soon. So stay tuned. I am just so grateful for you and all of the the wonderful work that you do. I'm so excited to pick your brain about women's hormone health because this is definitely an area that I myself have struggled with over the past decade. And I know there are so many other women out there who also can relate. So let's just start with the basics. What are the most common hormonal imbalances that women experience and what are some of those symptoms? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand what hormones are. You know, they're just messengers. They're just chemical messengers that go from one place to the next. And they're going between what we call these endocrine organs. So that's what we call about endocrine disruptors. Like that's a big common topic now in women's health. And that's really important to understand because if you're understanding that these hormones are just messages from one place, organ to the other, you can really understand when there's an imbalance in one organ, it can really impact the other, right? And again, you have these two classes of hormones. I think when we talk about hormones, we're always so focused on female sexual health. So we're thinking estrogen, testosterone, but there are two classes. So you have those are made from cholesterol, which is why eating fats is so important, ladies. Don't skimp on fats. (laughs) And that's going to be your testosterone, your estrogen, your DHEA, your cortisol level. And then you have these non-steroid hormones. These are not made from fats. That's your thyroid, your insulin, prolactin, ghrelin, leptin. These are all important because they all interconnect and like we said before, it's a hormonal imbalance. So which means one is high, one is low, and that can tremendously impact a lot of us women. 
Great breakdown. And what are some of those common symptoms? Yeah, symptoms can be so sneaky, um, especially as women. We're so like, I feel like here to just do everything, go, go, go all the time, sometimes, oftentimes putting ourselves second. So it can be really sneaky, like um, you're not eating as much or you're eating too much. Um, you're starting to feel a little bit more fatigued. You just can't catch a break and you're just relying on coffee so much. Or now suddenly your menstrual cycle goes from 28 days to 35 days. You're like, oh, well, maybe whatever, you know, and then you just move on to the next, right? Um, weight is always a thing. I think once it starts impact, it, impacting women aesthetically, they kind of pay more attention to how they are appearing. And then the hair loss is like now a thing. The fatigue she can deal with, but the hair loss she won't deal with, right? The acne as well too, you know, once in a while you're breaking out because you're eating dairy, but then now suddenly you're breaking out a lot or more cyclically, every menstrual cycle, now you're, you're breaking out, you're having headaches. These are all ways your body's screaming for help. But again, so many of us are going to be ignoring it, going by our day, and the rest of us are going to be like, okay, maybe it's been five years of feeling kind of crappy. Let's do something about it. I definitely resonate with a lot of that. And, you know, we had spoken last Friday about that. And I feel like at least my experience, and I I think other women resonate with this as well, we just become used to it, right? I've become used to feeling a certain level of fatigue. And again, I think to your point about we don't necessarily try to opt for a change until there's that physical observation, right? Like our face is breaking out, some women experience hair loss. So it's definitely really important, I feel like, to take just even if it's five minutes a day, just to check in with your body right? And say, okay, how am I feeling? Scale of <laughs> one to 10. Let's go through these areas. Yeah, for sure. Um, but no, it d- definitely resonate with that. And to that point too, how does hormonal balance affect overall health? Yeah, I think um, you have the two categories, the women that are like in the reproductive years, like our age group, and then you have our parents age in their 60s and beyond, right? So we have to focus not only on having healthy cycles right now, but it, because it's going to tremendously impact our vitality, our well-being much later. So we're looking at how right now we don't have diabetes. We're healthy, we are strong, we feel good, but then we want to maintain this vitality and be able to maintain that lifestyle as we're you know, transitioning to our 60s and, and beyond. That's because our hormone health is going to impact our bone health our muscle mass, our heart health. There's tremendous studies looking at high cholesterol and thyroid function, for instance, right? Um, Diabetes, again, that's just eating all the sugars and all the Doritos in our youth and we're young, we feel good. But then slowly as we age, our vessels are not as strong anymore. We slowly maybe transition into a more sedentary lifestyle, which again is going to impact our muscle health, our bone health, our heart health. So hormones are not just for us to have babies. They're great. We love it. I love babies. But beyond um, having the desire for pregnancy, you want to be healthy, mind-body connection, and that's going to be really working hard on hormonal health now to be a successful, fabulous six-year-old in the future. I couldn't agree more. And just curious, from your experience with patients, how much of a factor do genetics play in women who have hormone imbalance issues like PCOS, endometriosis, estrogen dominance, et cetera, versus 
I guess, self-imposed hormonal imbalances, right? Due to overexercise, restricting foods. What's the breakdown of that? It's half and half, I would say. I say that because we always ask for women's health history when assessing her health. That's because genetics play a tremendous impact on our well-being. Um, I know you talk about your mom's history with cancer, right? That how it can impact your well-being in the future. I have friends who have parents with BRCA gene mutation. That means we have to be more proactive about testing them and making sure they are also extremely conscientious of maintaining healthy hormonal health and be more proactive about their health and well-being too. So half and half, there's a significant genetic impaction, but I strongly believe that we can, as well as humans, make a strong effort to not change our genetic, but not have those things that can trigger that now, you know, turn into that DNA to now enter into the cancer zone. We all have cancer cells, but we all know that there is a trigger. Um, environmental, it could be diet, it could be our stress. We're incredibly a stress generation. Millennials are all stressed out. And unfortunately, we're seeing diseases that our parents had in the future, like when they were much older, now in that younger population, which is why they're now transitioning, even colon cancer, you know, screening from like 50s and on to like the 40s. We're not that close for, to, for, to 40, you know? So yeah, there's a half and half. Uh, family history is extremely important, but I strongly believe just connecting with the patient, making them understand their lifestyle choices right now can impact their well-being in the future can also kind of trigger a little like light bulb in there, you know? So yeah. I am fascinated with the area of epigenetics. Mm-hmm. And again, I always say genes may load the gun, but environment and lifestyle factors pull the trigger. And to the point about, you know, cancer risk and whatnot, interestingly, only five to 10% of breast cancers are hereditary, right? And this could be a whole other conversation, but I think it's, it saddens me when women who may test positive for the BRCA gene automatically go and get double mastectomy Mm -hmm. just to quote unquote, prevent the possible cancer risk. And that's not, it's not necessarily the, the right path to choose from. Again, it's, it's addressing your estrogen dominance, ensuring that your own hormones are balanced because just because someone carries a gene for something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to actually manifest. So yeah, couldn't agree more there. And going back, so I, I mentioned before about some of these, I guess, self-imposed things that women may do to perhaps look better, <laughs> e.g. restricting their food, over-exercising, and how that impacts hormonal balance. Can we first touch on nutrition and specifically a ketogenic diet? Because this has been all of the rage lately. I feel like there's all these new dietary patterns coming up. And I've read several studies that have shown that ketosis disrupted women's hormonal systems due to that low carb intake. So what are your thoughts on the keto diet, specifically in the context for menstruating women? Honestly, I'm not a big fan of any diet being imposed on somebody. Um, I know a lot of people think, oh, naturopaths put everyone on a gluten-free diet. No, I really don't. Um, eat all the gluten you want, you know, if you're okay with it. I strongly believe you can, you have to focus on three things, FFP, fat, um, fiber, and protein. That's extremely important. So fiber means eating enough of um, some sweet potatoes as well as some beans and legumes. You get some carbs in there too. And fat, we discussed this before, all of our sex hormones come from fat, the healthy fats. You know, that means the olive oils are really good for you versus the 
canola and peanut oils, and then a healthy amount of proteins. That could be some plant proteins, which are also, again, that beans um, category, or animal proteins. I am not a huge fan of just singling out a certain food that needs to be taken out. Again, our brain relies on sugar. The keto diet was created in an effort to help epileptic patients, you know, to help their brain health. And now it's, you know, the masses, everyone's on a keto diet. I have found a lot of women come to me wanting to get off of it or struggling now because they don't really know how to re-include those healthy foods. Fruits are healthy for you. Vegetables are healthy for you. You know, I don't think eating a stick of butter is always going to be um, the best fit. Again, we talk about genetics. My family, for instance, we have a genetic predisposition to having high cholesterol. I can't be eating keto thinking I'm going to be healthy, all the while knowing that years later I might have a heart attack because I was keto in my 30s, you know? So no, I strongly believe we need to focus back on just eating foods that makes your body feel good. Not being so much, I'm a vegan, I'm a pescatarian. Let's stop identifying as our foods, right? Let's just start working on just eating food that impacts our just our genetics well and our brain well and our physical wellness as well and our hormonal health too. Yeah, 100%. I'm just sitting here nodding for those of you who can't see the video, but I, I couldn't agree more. And I think sadly, especially in the health industry right now, at least in the space of like wellness influencers, right? Someone has a specific diet that may or, you know that may work for them, and automatically everyone's like, "Oh, this person experienced a reduction in all of these different symptoms. I'm going to do it too." Failing to recognize that everyone is different, everyone's bodies are different, and everyone requires a you know personalized nutrition plan. And interestingly, too, I also read that keto diets can actually lead to insulin resistance in the future because they obviously don't allow the body to properly use insulin. So blood sugar isn't, isn't controlled. So I think that's interesting that you have women who are now wanting to go back to that normal pattern of eating and are, are having issues. Oh, hundred percent. What is your ideal plate makeup? And you did talk about like the healthy proteins, fiber, and fats. If we were to put a percentage on each of those, yes. what, what might that look like? So yeah, I will definitely think we discussed this. I mean, I've seen a lot of your posts about the Mediterranean diet, right? That's like the ultimate best diet for most of us, I will say, only because it includes all the food groups. But again, it's about quality of the food and as much as quantity of the food. So focusing on that, removing the dirty dozen. So these foods that have the highest pesticide content, um, the list is updated every single year by the Environmental Working Group, ewg.org. They have an app on my phone. I'm like, at the store, can I have this? Let me just do a little skin deep check thing. And then before I buy, you know, we're a creature of habit. So if we had these habits when we were young, I strongly believe we can kind of change them as we grow. But the perfect plate will have a healthy amount of protein, a healthy amount of delicious green vegetables, the darker, the better, because we all know that's really healthy for us. And a healthy amount of animal protein, actually. I'm a really big fan of people eating a healthy amount of animal protein if it's okay for their physiology. Of course, if you can digest meat or whatnot, then we can move to plant protein. So women are supposed to be aiming for 25 grams or so of fiber every single day. And then with protein, there's usually that little like 0.8 to 1.1 gram per kilogram 
of body weight. So again, depending on what phase of your life you're in, this might change. How much you exercise also is going to impact how much you're eating. So there's no perfect caloric count, but it has to feel good to you. And of course, fats are always good for us. So don't skimp on fats. I would like you to touch on the importance of fiber, especially for women. Fiber, from my understanding, plays a critical role in helping the body detox from excess estrogen, right? So women who are more prone to develop PCOS, endometriosis, these estrogen-dominant diseases, can you just touch on the importance of fiber in a, yeah. in a woman's diet and also health strategies or tactics to consume enough fiber for women who have problems digesting it? Yeah, for sure. Um, I see two things with fiber. Either people are consuming too much of it and now they're constipated because when you're increasing your fiber intake, you have to kind of go a little bit slow. You know, your body is trying to adjust to all these vegetables. And if you don't, you're not matching your water intake, now you might be struggling with being a little bit backed up. So you want to be eliminating. Our body makes fresh estrogen every single day. We don't want old, boring estrogen from the day before. We're too cool for that. So we've got to make sure we're pooping daily. And again, the pooping daily thing is because we want to be eliminating. Everyone has a different poop schedule, I would say. Some people poop every two days. As long as your schedule is the same for you, that's what matters the most. Again, dif- different phases of our menstrual cycle, we're going to be a little backed up than other. Our luteal phase, sometimes the higher progesterone is going to impact our bowel health with being a little bit more backed up, but we really want fiber to eliminate. We want fiber to come in and just take all the gum that we have in our gut to move it out, especially when it comes to that estrogen dominant picture. There is this enzyme called beta-glucuronidase, and it's pretty much going to be made when we have a poor gut health. Dysbiosis, SIBO, we may have heard these terms before. And this enzyme's job is to pretty much recirculate estrogen, right? So we really want to make sure we have good gut health. We're feeding our gut with healthy prebiotics like the bananas, the onions, the garlic, and probiotics in the form of yogurt or a supplement to really keep our gut health in tip-top shape, especially when it comes to hormonal health, our thyroid function. We need a healthy liver to activate thyroid hormones. So this is all important. Fiber is your best friend. Like I said before, you've got to go slow. You're a big fan of smoothies. I'm a big fan of smoothies. That means a smoothie in the morning or adding like spinach to your eggs in the morning or, you know, um, adding fibers again in the form of a snack, carrots and hummus. That's fiber again and healthy fats too and proteins. Adding fibers again to lunch, some broccoli here and there. Broccoli is your best friends for all things gut health. And of course, adding more fiber to dinner. So look at your plate. Look at your day. How much green, colorful things do you see? Or is it all kind of bland and yellowy and corn and just like fried food? You know, this is kind of how I like to assess. Is it more of a colorful plate or just a single color plate? I've been making these bowls. I'm sure you see them. I basically post them every day on Wellness Strong's Instagram. I do a bowl of the day feature, but it's essentially kale, broccoli, sweet potatoes, eggs, and I'll put obviously some spices and whatnot on it, but I have, and an avocado. So I hit all my three requirements right there. So definitely uh, one of my favorites. Dr. Daisy, so going back to the role of exercise, I was guilty of this. I would come home in high school, be on my elliptical or treadmill for like two or three hours 
thinking, oh, this is great. I'm getting my stress out. I'm building my body, not recognizing that that was doing more harm than good. Right. And I think a lot of women, you know, we see female triad syndrome where a lot of female athletes get amenorrhea. They stop getting their periods because they're over exercising so much. And so many women today, you know, they're signing up for these hit classes and they're doing them every single day of the month. Can you explain to listeners why that might be not the best route if you're trying to optimize your hormones? Yeah, I think exercise is wonderful. I think it's the best antidepressants on the planet. You know, when I'm not feeling good, I go out for a walk, I feel better. However, again, it's a stressor as well, which means that every time we're exercising or over-exercising beyond our limits, it's going to impact our hormonal health. So I like to ask my patient this question, do you feel rejuvenated after working out or do you feel depleted? If you're feeling depleted all the time, that's likely not a good fit for you, you know, especially when we talk about this adrenal fatigue or HP axis dysfunction. If you are in that, you know, wired and tired, maybe exercise like hit is not your best friend. You might consider some strength training. And as a menstruating woman, we have different phases of a menstrual cycle. And I want all women to understand this. If you're listening, I know you are, is that you can't expect your body to be the exact same at at every phase of your menstrual cycle. And I think sometimes we're like guilty. We feel bad that we're not like go, go, going from day one to 35, you know, and that's okay. When hormones are at their peak at ovulation, testosterone is nice and high, work out harder, go for that head class or go for a nice run. If you find that you're more depleted, listen to your body more than anything. You may have your workout plan for the day or the week, but then you don't sleep really well, don't go for the hit class. Go for a restorative yin yoga class or something or a nice walk outside, you know? So pay attention to how your menstrual cycle is affecting your well-being and listen to your body more, lean into it more, especially with exercise. Because again, it's a stressor. Too much of it will stop your menstrual cycle. And again, we don't want that. We need to be ovulating. We need to be bleeding every month. It's important for us. Moderation is key. And I, I recall reading, I think it was a year ago when I hopped on the board of, um, what's that doctor's name? Oh, it's like Beyond the Pill, Dr. Yes. Jane Brighton. Yes, yes. And she basically wrote this book. I read that years ago when I was getting off of birth control. And in that book, she highlighted specific foods to eat during the different phases of your cycle. And then with that, I did some more digging and found that there's also a chart that tells you how to exercise throughout your cycle and which exercises to focus on each week. And that has also been a game changer. Exactly. And it makes a difference and also removes boredom. Let's say you're like, oh, I don't want to run today. You don't have to run today. You're welcome to do yoga. You're welcome to do Pilates or a boxing class. So you don't have to be running every single day if you don't want to. To that point too, I mean, you just said exercise is a stressor on the body. There are other things outside of exercise that are also stressors on the body, e.g. hormetic stressors. And for listeners, these are basically things that put a lot of stress, right, on your body in the short term, but are beneficial in the long term, meaning saunas, cold showers, things along those lines. What are your thoughts on the frequency at which we should be doing it? So I am guilty. I'm one of those people that enjoys going in the sauna followed by a cold shower every day. And then I'm realizing, hmm, like, this might be too much stress on my body. So what what are your thoughts on that? 
I think same thing when it comes to exercising um, and the saunas. If again, when you're doing it, you feel good, then by all means, go for it. But if you're finding you're depleted afterwards, then don't. You know, um, we all get energized or depleted by different things, and a cold shower almost always is going to energize someone. But if you're like super stressed out, you're in that like. HP access dysfunction that's really significant. That cold burst might just feel your body is gonna be really stressed out by it too, right? So again, listen in, lean in. Um, moderation is key. Too much of a good thing cannot become a bad thing. So let's say you're like a monthly saunas or twice a week, whatever feels healthy for you, all the while knowing that this routine can change and it's okay to change too. So we touched on nutrition, we touched on exercise. I would like to touch on the impact of environmental factors on hormone imbalance, because I feel like this is an area that really doesn't go too explored for most women, but it has a massive impact from VOCs to xenoestrogens and other hormone disruptors. Can you touch a bit on that? Yeah. So I think the biggest conversation, again, that we have to have is endocrine disruptors, why are we calling them endocrine disruptors is because our bodies are really smart. They're extremely smart. But then again, we are also in the world of scientists trying to create all these toxins that we think we need to apply on our skin or spray in our air, right? But we don't need our air to smell baby fresh. And guess what? These endocrine disruptors are only disrupting our hormone because they look like our hormones. So now let's say your bodies are sending messages from organs to the next. And now you have extra messages coming in from external sources. That's going to be the VOC. So the volatile organic compounds from your oils, your carpets, in addition to drinking out of plastic bottles, now your BPA. These are all extra messages that are coming into our system. Everything we eat, we apply on our skin is a form of message. Are we giving our body the message that it needs or not? So when we're looking at endocrine disruptors, the xenoestrogen, the VOCs, we're looking at them as potential causes of that estrogen dominant picture. Only because, again, we emit a certain amount of estrogen every single day. But now if we have external sources coming in and we don't have good gut health, we're constipated, it's not pooped out or sweat out every day. We can now find our bodies being burdened by these toxins. If you're like someone that's healthy, you're going about your day, you exercise, you do well with cleaning your diet and habits, you may not struggle with these as most. But if you're someone that's like bed, bath, and wait, bed, bath and body works or whatever, that little store that we used to go to when we were kids, and you like have um, VOCs everywhere, you have candles that are like popping out on date nights everywhere. These are all ways that your body is going to be taking in these excess toxins. So pay attention to that. Our diets also, you know, looking into what foods you can purchase organic and what foods you don't necessarily have to purchase organic is really helpful. And again, as women, we love our makeups. I like to get my nails done all the time. So look at what you're doing and how slowly you can transition your life from an estrogen dominant body and xenoestrogen and endocrine disrupted body to a less disrupted body. Because we can't remove toxins. We're living in toxins. But how much can we move out of our physical space to make our bodies the best? 
Absolutely. It's so funny. I cringe when I look back at some of the products I used in high school and even early college, just those perfumes, candles. I mean, now you might think I'm a bit extreme. And I was chatting with Dr. Lauren Matthewson about this in one of my first podcast episodes, but we bonded because we both said that even when we're in the supermarket, we refuse to walk down that cleaning aisle, right? With all of the glade. I don't sense and the plugins and the sprays like it just it makes me cringe and I feel like again because I've omitted all of that my body is extra sensitive to that even just walking by someone and smelling like heavy perfume I'm just like ah like walk the other way but uh yeah I, I couldn't agree more and and even to to your point about you know women we love our makeup we love our body care our skin is our largest organ right again so many people don't realize yeah. that and what we put on our skin gets absorbed into our bloodstream. So all the more important reason to make sure the makeup you're using is clean, the deodorant. I think it's really easy to become overwhelmed for someone embarking on this non-tox journey, but it really is just starting with one thing. Stop using aluminum deodorant. I use Humble Brands. I love a brand called 100% Pure for my makeup. So it's just making those little substitutes, right? It doesn't have to be, let's just, you know, haul everything over little by little, I think is is really key. And and that's key with anything. We're covering so many things. This is, this is great. But I would also like to touch on the connection between our hormone health and our mental health. And this is a huge area. This could be a whole episode in itself, but I think, again, especially for women who experience depression, anxiety, a lot of that, and maybe you could give us a percentage of you know, what you've seen in your patients are related to hormone imbalance. So how does a woman go about, I guess, discerning whether a mental health issue is rooted in a hormone imbalance? And what are some strategies to, to help address that? Yeah, I'm a big fan of a journal. You know, I've journaled my asthma symptoms all the time. So if someone is experiencing a change in their well-being, whether it's a gut thing or a skin thing, I'll say, you know, take note as to when you're ha- having a breakout. Take note as to when you're experiencing anxiety. Who's in your environment? Are you at work? Are you at home? Um, Take notes of the time of the month you're experiencing that too, because we all have heard about those dreaded PMS symptoms that, you know, that luteal phase, that second half of your menstrual cycle where the drop in estrogen, the drop in progesterone can really impact some women. I've noticed that it impacts some women more than others, solely sometimes due to a genetic disposition or to the state of life they're in, right? So let's say you're having a really tough time at work to begin with, and now you have a change in hormonal health. You can find that state that you used to deal with really well in the past, not to be really challenging to deal with. And thyroid function is one of them too. I used to get a lot of anxiety in medical school, and I was later finding out that I have a thyroid function issue. So that little state of anxiety now becomes extremely heightened only because now you have low thyroid hormone. That's a big one. Cortisol or stress hormones. Stress can be mental, emotional, physical stress. And again, we always think about like, oh, stress from work. No, stress is at work. Stress is also at home sometimes for some women or men. And that is also something to really pay attention to. So again, I'll say journaling 
is your best friend. And I'm, I'm not saying like a whole page on anything. No, like, oh, I felt stressed today. Just put a little check mark. Or I had a breakout today. Put a little check mark. Only so that we can pay attention, your provider and yourself, as to when you're experiencing the highs and lows. And really do see, is there a hormonal impact to it? Is there a diet impact? Is there an environmental place that you're in that your body just does not care for? You need to be removed from work or partnership or toxic. And that's going to be like the best friend. I love a journal. So start paying attention. Start being more in tune with your body by just writing it down. You know, I had a bad day today. My work stuck, but also I'm in my luteal phase. Dang it. That's why. <laughs> I'm a huge journaling enthusiast. It's so funny. I've gotten used to journaling probably daily or every other day. And for the past week, I haven't been able to because I had I had a little mishap with a, a new knife set I got and ended up getting stitches in my right hand. So not being able to write in my journal for a week almost made me go crazy, which is so funny. It's so helpful. It's, it's truly helpful even just for my own mental health. So definitely agree with you there. And Dr. Daisy, another thing I wanted to touch on is some common misconceptions or myths related to hormonal imbalance. So for example, I've heard so many people say, oh, you know, you can't heal your hormones naturally. You need to see an endocrinologist, need to go on birth control. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I obviously have had experience with this. I was diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome back in college, right after I had a concussion, which I had mentioned to you last week, I think, you know, may have played a part in that development. But I worked with an endocrinologist at MassGen in Boston for a while. And they put me on birth control for about four years. And I felt, you know, did not feel well mentally or physically, opted to get off of it. And I remember visiting that doctor two months after being off my birth control, we ran blood panels and everything looked normal. And she was like, what did you do? Like you, you're presenting as a patient without PCOS. What did you do? And I just sat there and was like, you know what? I I changed my nutrition made some lifestyle changes, introduced some supplements, and just walked out feeling so great about how I felt physically, but also the fact that I was able to address that naturally. So for listeners out there, what are some other common misconceptions about hormonal health? Um, Women not needing testosterone, for sure, as we're aging is testosterone might not be as important for women compared to men in terms of how much we're making, but we still need it for a healthy heart, healthy bones. So yes, you do need testosterone and a healthy sex drive as well, even in our reproductive years. Um, Another one is going to be hormones only matter if you desire pregnancy. And we all know that's not true because hormones are going to matter beyond feeling good and not having fatigue when you wake up every single day, not craving sugars when you're not supposed to, um, having not killing hormone naturally. I don't believe that. Birth control, I believe, have, has its time and place, but it's a Band-Aid. So I had a patient who struggled tremendously with endometriosis and she desires pregnancy in the future and was placed on birth control off of birth control, welcome back to a painful cycle. Again, we have to really work on balancing her cortisol, addressing her inflammation response, so she's not less in pain when she has a period, and of course, the mind-body connection too. So you have to remember birth control has its time in place. If you want them birth control, sure. But once you're getting off of birth control, are you regressing back to the symptoms you had before? If yes, let's really get to the root cause of what's going on with your body. Is it a thyroid function issue? Is it a cortisol issue, an estrogen issue? 
or is it just an inflammation issue? Are you just eating a diet that's not conducive to good health and we need to work on the diet? Yeah. Exhibit A right here of that last myth, not true. You can heal your hormones naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, So if anyone has any questions about that, feel free to DM me and I'm happy to share with you what I did. And Dr. Daisy, so another area that I'm very passionate about is herbal medicine and homeopathy, as I know you are. What are your top remedies for women who, again, are struggling with hormonal imbalance? And obviously, I know this is going to depend on each situation, but in in general, what are some of the most helpful ones that you've seen? Uh, I like rhodiola when it comes to helping with that adrenal response. You have to be mindful as to when you're using it solely because it's a really energetic herb. And if you're just like too high in terms of your cortisol, that can be like a little bit too strong. So ashwagandha has been talked about the most because it's like the most general balancing herb. If you're too high, it brings you down. If you're too low, it brings you up. So ashwagandha is great. Um, if you want to do like vitex or chase tree for progesterone support, is also Amazing. So I like those two. Um, black cohosh has been shown to also help support that estrogen. Black cohosh, Valium are always good. And depending on the person, even though I'm not a huge fan of St. John's Word, sometimes it can really help um, support women who struggle with their mood, especially in that luteal phase. But St. John's Word happens to be one of these herbs that interact almost everything on planet Earth. Yes. So you have to be extremely diligent. I prescribe it very rarely, but when I do, women do find some relief when it comes to that. And again, when it comes to thyroid function, um, tyrosine, um, herbs like astragalus, some mushrooms, I know you're a big fan of mushrooms, I saw your soup today, Um, reishi mushrooms, shiitake, all these mushrooms have tremendous benefits for our immune health, as well as our hormonal health too. So you kind of have to boil it all in, you know, find the perfect sauce for the person you're working with. There's so many herbs, but there's the right one for every single one of us. I love that. The perfect sauce. So true. I have a whole cabinet just dedicated to my herbs from Mountain Rose. <laughs> Again, I, lo- I love astragalus. I-, I put them in my smoothies sometimes, but yeah, huge herbal enthusiast yes, over here. I love it. Well, Dr. Daisy, we mm-hmm. we have covered so much. I'm so grateful for you and all the work that you do. I do want to be Thank cognizant you. of your time because I know you're a busy woman, but where can listeners find you? Um, on Instagram, I'm pretty active on the platform. So you're welcome to find me at Dr. Daisy Anglo. It's D-A-I-S-E-Y. My mom was really crafty when she decided in the 90s. Um, but yeah, you can find me on Instagram. And honestly, I'm always happy to chit chat in the DMs. So welcome to always message me. I love that. And you have some of my favorite reels out there. I absolutely love your Instagram account. So I will definitely be linking that in the show notes. And my last question for you, what does being well and strong mean to you? Being well and strong. It's like, I'm going to get emotional. Honestly, because I struggled for so long with having asthma and not being able to like just go about my day without feeling awful and gasping for air. Being well and strong doesn't mean like being able to just go about your day feeling good. Do you know how hard people are have to pretend to be okay all the time and go about their days? No, that's not that's not okay. Being well and strong means you can get up in the morning, get about your day, go walk your dog without being in pain. 
have the energy to get up, have the energy to feed yourself, to feed your children, um, take care of your partner or your parents if you have to. Being well and strong also means that you're a strong fit of mind and body. You're feeling good at work. You're feeling like your words matter. You're being like your voice matters. Being well and strong means being able to step into the world as the best version of yourself. No facade, nothing, just you and being accepted for who you are. That was beautiful. See, this is why I ask this question to all of my interviews because everyone has such beautiful responses. I absolutely love it. Well, Dr. Daisy, it has been a pleasure. Again, thank you so much for all the work that you do. I'm I'm so excited to share this with listeners and we will chat soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe, leave a rating and share it with others. Be sure to visit wellandstrong.com to access notes from the show and to stay current with new content. I'm so grateful you joined me. Be well and be strong.